Please turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We started Genesis last week, and, and, and we're going to move real slow over these first few weeks. In fact, we're going to look at the same two verses again. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. You know, some things are just great just to spend a lot of time on, right? But we will move forward here in the next few weeks. But Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and Two. This is God's holy, inerrant, perfect word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for your self-revelation in it, and we pray, God, that as we look in this perfect word, Father, that we would um, know how to worship you and glorify you well, Father, that we would have um, increasing confidence in, um, in our ability to speak about you, Father, that if there are those who wonder and doubt about you as creator, that you would begin to answer some of those questions. Father, and that uh, you would really answer this great heart cry that we have. It's to have you to, to fill us and to, to, to know you. And so pray, God, as we look at these verse, verses, that we would uh, know you and know you well. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, I would um, go a lot into the mountains of Colorado and I spent a lot of time by little creeks and rivers that were there. And, you know, if you've ever seen a Colorado mountain stream, they're just beautiful. They're, they're so clear. They're crystal clear. And, um, and it just looks refreshing to go in there and, and jump in and play in or, or even just to bend over as a boy and to stick your mouth in there and, and, and take a drink because it's, you know, it looks so refreshing on a hot day. We were told in no uncertain terms that you should never, as good as that water looks, ever drink from those streams. Because it looks refreshing, it looks good, it looks perfect and pure, but you don't know what happened upstream. You know, a deer could have stuck his mouth in there and drank from it, and if that deer has something called Girardia, uh, I don't know what it is, because I never drank, and I never, um, I mean, that was enough to warn me off, but I never got Girardia, but they made it sound like that's something you definitely don't want to get for the sake of your stomach. Um, You know, even if it looked good, even if it looked perfect and pristine, um, you know, it needed to be treated with care, it might be bad, it needed to be filtered for sure. Well, some of our beliefs are are upstream um, from others, and we live sort of downstream of certain beliefs. And by changing something upstream, like that deer in the water, um, would be one of those things that could affect something downstream. And if there's anything which is like that, it's, it's our understanding of creation. What we believe about creation has lots of downstream consequences to our life and to understanding our society. Uh, that's because where, where we believe that we come, came from, that infe- affects our understanding of why we're here. And why we're here affects our understanding of what we should be doing in our day-to-day life and our decisions. 
And that's why this book of Genesis is so important. And it's important just to spend some time focusing and even just meditating on these early scriptures. It reveals these things to us. I mean, there are so many views of how we got here. I mean, so many views of how we got here. Where did the universe come from? Do we have a purpose? Or are we accidental? What is our purpose if we have one? What does it mean for how we're going to live and make our decisions? Well, Genesis has this ability to connect us with reality. It connects us with what matters. It's given to us to remind us of our place in the world, to remind us our basis of our responsibilities and remind us of our purpose here. Now, while Genesis is timeless in its ability to communicate with us, uh, creation, I mean, it was given initially and, and held by Israel, the nation of Israel, in a very important time of their own national identity. Um, it was a time when they had just recently, by God's miraculous hand, through 10 miraculous plagues, been released from slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They were moving towards the promised land and were about ready to enter it. And they were going to be establishing their own nation. They were setting up um, their own laws in response to God's law. And the culmination of hundreds of years of God's planning and preparation for this time, they needed to see the, their own distinctiveness as God's people. They needed to see their own special role that they had in the history of the world. They needed to see their, their, their life in covenant relationship with God. And that, that relationship was the foundation of their distinctiveness. And that relation was based on God's creation of the world and everything in it. It was going to be a foundation for them, for their justice system, for their nation, and for their own purpose inside the world. They were going to bring light to the world. In order to do so, they needed to be distinct from the nation they were escaping and also distinct from the nations they were going to and, and, um, and conquering. And so they had this account given to them at that right foundation point to change the world. And it's, it's important for us to grasp that. Because we see competing accounts of creation, especially with the view of atheistic evolution. It's taught in our culture. It's taught in our schools. One of the dominant narratives of our day would say that, you know, this universe and everything in it and human life is an accident, that, that people are a product of pure chance, and there's no meaning to our lives except for the propagation of our species. Ultimately, life culminates with a meaningless death. This belief, this atheistic evolution, this humanism has permeated every level of society. It's, it's stripped away belief in God from our social institutions. It's removed any sense of life's purpose from many individuals. And it's left us as a nation without a moral foundation, without a sense of purpose or destiny. Because if you believe that you are the byproduct of blind chance, if you believe that you are a descendant of, of germs and monkeys, if you believe that you're a simple animal who, who operates on instinct, well, that's going to affect the way that you live. As our nation is taught this, is this adopted? Is there, is there any wonder that depression and suicide would abound? Is there any wonder that drugs and violence would be the problem that they are? As the creation narrative of Genesis is abandoned, are we surprised to see the rampant sexual anarchy of our world? someone thinks they're merely reproducing animals, why not act like it? Like many of our popular songs, rock songs suggest. One song said, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. Let's do it like they do 
on the Discovery Channel. You know, so you see it affects even the songs that we listen to. Again, if we're animals, you know, why not respond as animals? Is there any wonder this atheistic evolution-based belief system resulted in the deaths of millions and millions of people through totalitarian governments in the 20th century? With no moral code, with no accountability, with subjugated and non-critical people, would there be any wonder they'd be successful in their efforts? So we wouldn't be surprised they'd be so successful with that. You know, there's a connection that a wrong starting point leads to a wrong destination. So what we want to do is set our thinking right. We want to see what God, what, what is it that God has communicated to us in his word in creation. And so last week what we looked at was how we know that God created the universe. We saw those first four words, in the beginning, God. And God is our creator, to know him and to worship him. If you didn't watch it, you know, I encourage you to watch it online. Well, this week we want to look at why God and a doctrine of creation is necessary. You know, what happens if we take creation out? And it isn't pretty. Now, the Genesis creation um, narrative, it gives us a foundation for ethics, values, and purpose. It gives us a basis for a moral order. It gives us a basis for justice, dignity of every individual in a meaningful life. So we're going to look at how it works out in three ways. And the first thing we want to see is uh, that God is ultimate reality. At the first point, I want to just mostly remind us of things we discussed last week. You know, we saw that Genesis begins with the very existence of God. We read those first four words, in the beginning, God doesn't prove his existence. Uh, it's, when it speaks to him, it speaks about him as being eternally existent, as, 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 as evident in all of creation. He isn't someone that was created or something that was created. He's not next in the line of a bunch of gods, as Isaiah 43.10 tells us. It says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, in whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Listen to this. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. We see this depiction of God as ultimate reality. He was before there was anything else. He just was. There's an origin story given, but he's been eternally present as the self-sufficient, self-existent creator. In this way, we saw last week how Christians are not morally or not intellectually disadvantaged when it comes to understanding creation. In fact, we have an incredible understanding where all this comes from. There must have been something eternal. I mean, the universe cannot create itself. Something cannot create itself. There's no such idea as self-creation. So what put it here? Did the universe always exist? Well, if somebody says it already existed, they need to, to prove that against vast amount of scientific evidence that shows it's impossible to have a universe that's already existed. Even if a person says, I, I believe in the Big Bang, we might ask, what is it that banged at the beginning? You know, Big Bang needs a Big Banger, it's been said. And Genesis reveals that God is that creator. God is the one who's self-existent from all eternity. And how he created the universe as distinct from himself. And while he may be distinct from the universe he created, he's not distant from the world that he created. Just look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Ever since the creation of the very first particle. You know, God has been present with his creation, even before it had the current form. 
Maybe it shows something that, that this universe is not ultimately impersonal, but it's personal. You know, God has created it. It's, it, it's something, it's, it's created out of his personal plan. It's, it's his personal story. It's his personal plan he's weaving together. And so the biblical theology is that God is distinct from his creation and he is intimately involved with it. He's a great and holy God and he loves us as a creation. Both are, are true there. So first of all, we see that God is ultimate reality. We cannot understand ourselves or our universe rightly until we see him as our creator. The second thing we want to point out is that God formed and he filled the world. How, how did God develop, you know, what did God do with this interest, his, his presence inside of all creation? Verse 2 speaks about um, creation there after um, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, it says, the earth was formless and void. Formless and void. The words in Hebrew rhyme, they're tohu wobuhu, refers to a desert, a wasteland, an unformed substance. In the biblical account, uh, God created these, these two planes, these two distinct planes, the heavens and the earth, the heavens for the dwelling place of him and his, and his angels, and then the earth, this, this inhabited world full of his uh, created objects, physical objects. We see that in verse 1. But, you know, this place of his created objects was not in its final form. In the first acts of God's creating this, you know, physical plane, um, you know, we see at the beginning no organization, no people, no plants or animals or people. It, there wasn't even light here as we go through verses 1 and 2. We see something exists. It's a, it's a plane of existence, but it's still formless and it's, and it's lifeless. And as we go on to read the rest of chapter 1, we see how God forms it. He, he puts it together and then he, he fills it with his creatures. If you look at verses 3 through 13, you'll see how God uh, took these first three days of creation. He created light and he created the skies and the earth and, and, um, and the land. And he spends the next three days taking those, those, those things and he, and, and he fills them. We see the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the birds, the animals, and finally um, mankind. And as you know, or you may know, as we'll see in the next few weeks, is that you know, God matches these first three days with the next three days. And there's a match between day one and four, day two and five, day, day, day three and six. He, he creates in these groups of three. We see in all this the orderliness of God. We see him creating out of nothing and then forming that world and filling it with wonders and creatures. And, and we see the, the amazing and the orderly way that he does it. It's not haphazard at all. He doesn't leave things chaotic, but designed and, and beautiful and orderly. And so as we look through the universe, as we look through uh, the creation, we see God's character and what he did is his fingerprints are all over it. The universe and, and and everything in it, that becomes the overflow of his love, the overflow of his glory. He didn't need to make this world and everything in it. He didn't need to make it in order to make him happy. Like he was missing some bit of happiness until it was all here. No. I mean, creation is the reflection of his overwhelming joy that he had. He has so much joy in himself that he creates a universe to share his joy and to um, share the experience of his glory. He, clear, he created the, the angels and mankind and animals to, to see his grace and his love. It's telling that the first thing he created was light. If you look back at verse 2, we see the darkness was over the, the surface of the deep. 
God is a reflection of his own character. The first thing he does is he creates light in the world. He forms it according to this design. You know, when we when we look at this, we see God also not only forming Adam, but also filling Adam. You can look at Genesis 2-7 when we see God formed Adam. And then he filled Adam. He formed Adam in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then man became a living being. He, he forms and then he fills him with the breath of life. God creating in his image, but he also wants to fill us with his joy and with his love. I mean, his, his work is to fill us with his Holy Spirit. As we, we live in light of creation, we live orderly lives, grounded moral principles, shining with his light, to be filled with his fullness of his glory and his love. Ephesians 3.19 says that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God forming us, creating us, and his desires filling us, filling us with life, spiritual life. And these are the things that have been lost in sin. So we don't know and experience life the way that God created us to experience it. When we disobey, when we ignore him, when we walk away from creation as designed by him, we, we face the consequences of it. Remember, the world was without form and void. And, and sin is choosing that emptiness. It's choosing darkness. It's choosing disorder rather than fullness and light and order. The Bible even describes the judgment of God in the terms of, of the reversal of creation. God's judgment brings us back to the condition that existed before God formed and filled this world. Look at Jeremiah chapter 4, 22 and 23. Jeremiah 4, 22 and 23. First, it describes how people have abandoned God. It says, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. And then you see what verse 23 goes on to say, the result of it. The result is the return to the creation before God ordered it. It's back to Genesis 1-2. He said, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void and to the heavens and they had no light. You know, that's, that's what happens in the rejection of God. That's what happens in the choosing of sin over God. That's what happens when we think we are wiser than God. Our lives, our families, our nations, they become disordered and broken. We only become weaker as we turn our back towards God. It shows the, the criticalness of revival. We need to see God in the center. That's what we pray for God to bring revival. Because unless it comes, we would see the continued degradation of society around us. Our, our call is to persevere in it and to continue to share that hope with the world. There's a mission that we have to point people away from that. Because great creative design. People think they could be happy with God, but the Bible speaks of the, about the disorder of this way of life. The ancients made the case that life without God could not be full or rewarding. I read one atheist recently who, who said the loss of religious meaning results in decreased happiness, increasing suicide, and the failure to live effectively as a species. It's almost like you'd say that we're designed to have God at the very center of our being. Even when Jesus spoke of final judgment, he said it's the removal of light and the casting into darkness. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, where he speaks about a judgment. He says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. That is the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember, darkness was over the face of the earth. 
was without form. It was void. The whole description of, of hell is, is described as a turning away of the face of God. We can look at Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30. Well, Genesis chapter 1 shows that the Spirit of God was the one who was going to bring life into the world. Psalm 104 shows that when we lose fellowship with God, we experience spiritual death. It's this prayer. It's God, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and they return to the dust. I mean, our continued existence is in the, the presence of living Coram Deo before the face of God as he preserves and carries us. But many live as if God is non-existent. They live in darkness. They live purposeless, lifeless, and disordered. It's, it's not the way that God created us to be. Greatest, remember, he created us to be formed and to build for his glory, for our joy in him. But, but notice what happens when God is active or present. He says, when you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. You know, it's the Spirit of God who created life in this world. We see the, the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. But we also see the Spirit of God which creates new life and causes people to be born again to new life in Jesus Christ. We pray that, that those that we love and know would know that life that the, only the Spirit of God can bring. That's life in Jesus Christ. You know, God is a God of order. He, he shows us throughout the whole Bible. He shows us in Genesis chapter 1. He, he brings life and he brings light. That's, that's something that really motivates us as we think about our mission. Because as we see the people around us, as we see neighborhoods or nations that are broken, disordered, living in darkness, we want to help. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a Christian response. I was thinking about, this morning I was uh, reading a, a story about a church and they were a... a um, suburban church, suburban church in a very wealthy part of our country, and they wanted to uh, reach to the um, more needy places in the area. You know, in their area, there was no crime, but there was a place that was just south of them which had an enormous amount of crime. You know, their place had high salaries, over $100,000 a year of, of gross um, income. You know, the place, just 30 minutes from them, the annual income was $29,000. You know, the, the families that, which are around them were intact. They looked just south of them 30 minutes and, and saw the, 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 the broken families that were there. And they wanted to see a mission that was there. And so they, they, what did they do? They, they built a church there, established a church, and recognizing if we're going to, you know, be witnesses in this world, this disordered, broken world, we need to, to plant a church down there. And so a number of their members would move down there. They would, you know, begin to... Um, get to know people in the neighborhood, the community, in order to start this church and to breathe hope into the, into the community. And I was thinking about, as I was reading the story, I was thinking about the other, th you know, some of the things that are happening around here. You know, I was thinking about ministry that we support, uh, CVJI, Central Virginia Justice Initiative. You know, they help with victims of human trafficking. And if you think about a place of disorder, darkness, deep, deep pain, ministry like that, and Michelle Trampy with what she does, and they come alongside women who suffer to find the hope in the God who made them and loves them. You know, I was thinking about the, um, the, the little flyer that was in your bulletin a few weeks ago. It said, welcome families. You know, we know with what's happening in Afghanistan that a lot of people who have helped our nation, they've been translators, and all those things, you know, are being forced to leave the country because their lives are at risk. You know, them and their children could be killed, and so they've you know, flown a lot over into our nation. And Deborah Smith helped us to kind of get organized with, um, with, you know, how we can welcome, invite, because, 
you know, as these families are displaced, you know, there's a great risk of life. There's a lot of disordering as you got to learn a new country, a new language, just figure out how you're pretty well to do in one country and you got to come to another country and reestablish a whole life. You know, as uh, there's, there's a darkness is there as our country descends down in chaos. You know, there, there's been a popularity with it. I, I don't know if you know this, but, um, you know, this week I, I got a call from World Magazine that says, and World Magazine is a national magazine, that says, hey, who organized this because we'd like to speak to that person. You know, so there's these exciting things that happen. Um, you know, as again, we see a broken world, broken people in it, come alongside and help that. We see darkness, you see the, the disorder, you see the pain, and you come alongside and you bring the help of the gospel. I mean, th- that's what encourages us in evangelism, isn't it? When we see uh, people who live in darkness, when there is disorder, when there is deep pain, you know, we know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know the light of the gospel and life, that people can be, uh, hear about Jesus Christ and his death for them upon the cross, so they can be restored to God, and they can be restored to the life and the full life that he offers to them through Jesus. You know, motivates us, you know, seeing, you know, people's lives are without form and void. I mean, the heart of God's people see disorder and to show how God restores people by his grace as they receive Christ by faith. There was this 19th century hymn called The Spirit of Power and Might, Behold, by James Montgomery, but it, it says this, Almighty Spirit, now behold, a world by sin destroyed, creative spirit as of old, move on the formless void. World by sin destroyed, move the formless void. You know, it's the people, the lives around us that we hope would know the gospel that brings life. Well, the third thing we want to look at today is God is the only foundation for life. God is the only foundation of life. Now, last week, again, we talked about, you know, the God who created and, and what does creation show us about him. And, and today what we want to look at is the necessity of God for purpose and for decision making. I mean, creation shows that we have an enormous amount of meaning. We see it as we experience relationships, as we experience family or patriotism or work, the things that we do. The Shorter Catechism says that that the chief end of man, the basic reason why we're here is to glorify God and to enjoy him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that whatever we do, we ought to do it for the glory of God. I mean, we are created in God's image. We are created for a purpose to reflect his glory out into the world. And one of the big reasons that I came to faith in Christ was my own search for, for meaning. I was in college. You know, I wanted to live a meaningful life, but I realized without God, I was just making things up for myself. I mean, you know, does my life have any meaning? Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I realized I was just going through thing after thing after thing and none would ever satisfy. Without God, I also could never be certain about right or wrong. I had no foundation for deciding between the two. It was no wonder I was uh, living my life like a flag blowing the wind. One person would say this and I'd say, oh, that sounds good. You better believe that. Another person said something else. I'd go that way and I knew I needed a foundation. I need a foundation for both purpose and for ethics. Belief in God is a necessary foundation for ethics. You know, yesterday we remembered 9-11. Remember one of the great changes that happened on that day. Before 9-11, 2001, people said, uh, well, there's no such thing as sin. There really isn't evil. Morals are relative. You believe what you want to believe. Others believe what they want to believe. But we can't call another person's belief evil. Well, all that happened, all that ended on 
you know, what we see, the, the planes crash into the towers and people started to use the word evil again. There was something which was abjectly evil. Notice that some things are not relative. Some behaviors are so bad they strike against the very moral fabric of society. But where does right and wrong come from? Are we just making it up? I mean, is it the, the product of evolution? Atheistic evolution cannot provide an adequate foundation for ethics. In the end, it ends up in utilitarianism. It's groundless. It allows people and societies to make things up. I mean, it might sound nice to be free from rules, but until someone takes advantage of you. And that's when we learn that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. Now, God is given to us through his character. He's shown us that, that, that his character is ultimately the foundation of what is good and what is right. I mean, good morality is not built on abstract principles. There are no abstract laws that are over all the universe, which even God has to apply. No, no, all laws are a reflection of his, pers- of his character, of what God is like. I mean, if God is true, then we have to worship him. It's a moral thing. He is sovereign, so we need to obey him. He's eternal, and so he values life. He's the creator. He's faithful, and he calls us to faithfulness in our marriage. He's true, and so he tells us not to lie. He's generous and wise, so he commands us not to steal or to even envy what others have. If we are going to be a just people or to even live in a just society, we need a foundation for justice. For example, is, is racism wrong, and why could it be wrong? Secular systems of ethics cannot tell us what is right or what is wrong. But biblical ethics can. And the scripture declares that and reveals to us that all people are created in God's image. No matter what skin color that they are, no matter what culture they're from or ethnic background they have. The Bible shows that all have descended from Adam and Eve. In light of that, there is one human race. Each person has inherent dignity and should be treated with respect and honor even if they are fallen in sin. Without God, it's, it's really just, you know, to say that racism is wrong is just a pragmatic decision made by the elite, and it could go either way. You know, the scripture throughout history has been a foundation for justice throughout the world, and, you know, nations like Nazi Germany or communist Russia, you know, they ignore the Bible. They ignore the historical teachings of the church in order to justify their own genocides. I mean, the clear implications of scripture call us to justice and to seeing the inherent dignity of every person. I was reading a book from an atheistic evolutionist and his comment was that it was bad and wrong to think one ethnic group is superior to another. And we agree with that. It is wrong to think that one ethnic group is superior to another. It's on the basis of, the, of their persons. But we believe that because, you know, we believe that, you know, we all have descended from one set of parents, from Adam and Eve. Many who believe and, and hold to atheistic evolution um, and, and of the human race seem to think the human race evolved from a number of different places around the earth, you know, all approximately the same time. Well, I mean, if, if that's the case, I mean, isn't it possible that one evolved better than another? That one was superior, that one was smarter? I mean, wouldn't that be possible for any of the races? I don't think that's the case, but what I'm saying, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think that's the case, but... You know, I'm thinking the atheistic evolutionists cannot say that the human race, um, cannot say that one human race evolved. They cannot say absolutely that all men are created equal. 
You know, we need one God. We need a biblical narrative of creation to be able to say that. What evolutionary ethicists said, I don't know what the best normative ethic theory for individuals is in their private lives. We say, you know, I don't know. There's really no ethical system for anyone. And he goes on to show that choosing any one ethical system would be parochial or too controlling. But if there's no foundation for right or wrong, is there any wonder that the moral fabric of Western society unravels before us? Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the biggest weakness and failure with Russia was they'd forgotten God. That was right at the foundation. That was upstream of, of all these other things that had happened and all the other atrocities. As a result, they let totalitarian, totalitarian communism take over the country. You know, what about the United States? You know, have we forgotten God? You know, the, the loss of God will weaken any nation. You think about it this way, another thing, we've talked about purpose and, and ethics. Well, what about human personality? I mean, are we really people or are we just organic machines? I mean, you cannot develop human personality from impersonal things. You know, you realize that. You cannot develop personality from a materialistic universe. If there's no personal creator, then personality is impossible. I mean, you cannot get personality from a rock. You know, they just don't have self-consciousness, but, you know, but we do. Without a personal creator, all we are is a collection of cells that's just striving to survive. If there's no personal creator, then you might think you're a person, but you aren't. You're just a randomly designed thing, not fundamentally different than that rock. And so, you know, no wonder. I mean, unbelief can lead to great depression if we're just straightforward with its implications. But we know that personality exists. We know we're human people with minds, emotions, and feelings. These things show that we're not just objects and machines, but we are people. And that's only possible if you have a personal God who created the universe. You know, realizing the personality of God is also important when we see the consequence of sin. You know, breaking his commands is so personal. You know, it's not just an offense against some abstract law that's out there, but no, it's an act of cosmic rebellion against a personal creator. It becomes a personal offense. So when we think about meaning and purpose of life, we might ask, why are we here? Does life have meaning? Without a creator, there is no possibility of purpose. People may move from pleasure to pleasure, job to job, activity to activity, but is there anything that makes a person's life meaningful? Without a creator, there's no possibility of having a purpose. It is something that people make up. They might create a meaning for themselves. They might come to the conclusion that really life has no meaning, but I'm going to pretend and live as if there is one sort of meaning. That's called nihilism. I'm going to live as if there is meaning. I'm going to, you know, it's the belief system that's part of so many TV shows and movies that we watch. I mean, life has no meaning except for the one that I make up for myself. And if I make it up and I believe in it strong enough, then it's okay. But that's just a life of pretending. I mean, it might work for a time. It might work for the day or something. But it doesn't work forever. It doesn't work before the face of God. And we're confronted with death when we, when we suffer, when we're sick, with something like cancer. We're forced to ask the question, what really gives our life meaning? I mean, what are we here for? What is the purpose? Again, we see the purpose of our God is revealed in Scripture. Genesis 1.28 says we're created in the image of God. We're created to know him. We're created to reflect him out into the world as his image bearers. We're called to reflect his glory. We're called to put his love on display. 
Being created in the image of God means that we're invited also to a relationship with God, you know, to be guided for his purposes in creation. And once we know God, what we can do is enter into life, the kind of life that God calls us to. We learn to live a life of purpose, to live in fellowship with God, to live in the obedience of the faith. And that brings us to the kind of life that we we're created to have. Jesus said, I came that may, they may have life and they would have it abundantly. But these are the very things which in sin we've disregarded God in. Though God has created the world and everything in it so we might know him, we've resisted that meaning, we've disregarded his laws, we've made up a law for ourselves, we've disregarded God's purposes for us, and we found our whole life and base it on a justice system that ignores him. We don't worship God as we should. And that is what creates a relational break with God and us. We stand under his judgment, unless that damage is restored. You know, that's the brokenness of our world. It's people who are separated from God. It's the, the distance that exists between them and God himself. And, and there's a need of restoration. There's a need of coming together. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. First, or John 14, 6 shows us that God, that, that Jesus came in to restore that relationship with God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, but there is a way. He's the way back to God. See, so God is that necessary part of our life. He's necessary if we're going to have good ethical system. He's necessary for life of purpose. He's necessary if we're going to grow in joy and love into eternity. And with something so necessary, would, would God allow us to live without him forever and ever? Well, he didn't. He sent Jesus so that through him we could be restored back to God. We need Christ, Jesus, to build our lives upon, to build our marriages upon, our families, our churches, our businesses, and even our nation. As Matthew seven twenty four goes on to say, everyone then, this is Jesus speaking, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, Jesus came to be that rock, to be that foundation to build our lives upon, to pay the penalty of sin, to restore us to our heavenly father. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven your sin. You've been reconciled with your creator. And if you haven't, it's so important. It's so necessary. Would you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? Would you repent of your sin and believe in him to be restored back to God? The grace of God restores us to himself. Thanks be to God that he'd send Jesus Christ. We need God and he's provided a way back to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've placed us inside of this world for a life of purpose, for a life of meaning, to reflect your glory, to speak of the wonders of your love, Father, to, um, to make known your great and mighty deeds. Father, you've given us life in this world to have joy in Jesus. Thank you, God, for these great gifts and we just do pray that you'd forgive us for the ways that we try to make these things for ourselves, that we ignore your perfect law and we find meaning outside of you and your plans and purposes. Father, we come to you by faith, thankful for what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you that you've, you, the great creator, have restored us to you through his blood.
Father, give me us life in him, and we submit ourselves to you by faith. Father, help us to find that meaning, that purpose in you. Father, help that to be the foundation for the way that we live and the decisions we make and strengthen us in the decisions we make, that we do it for your honor and glory, that we'd have a message to share with the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's continue to